Hello and welcome back to Comics Over Time, a podcast where we take a trip through the history of Marvel Comics with a focus on some of the important and interesting comic stories that inspired the Hollywood blockbusters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Every two weeks we take a look at a batch of comics and then watch the related MCU movie or TV show. Then after we're done, we connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures and try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best, the books or the screen adaptation? My name is Dwayne, and with me as always is my good buddy Dan. Dan, welcome. Hey there, Dwayne. How's it going this evening? <clears throat> it's going well. We've got we've got more Ant-Man to talk about. Always more Ant-Man to talk about, right? <laughs> So, yeah, it's going to be going to be interesting. We are heading back to the first one. So kind of interesting because we just finished watching a movie last week where Hank Pym is sort of this grandfatherly sort of guy in the movies. He's been portrayed as kind of this grumpy but lovable genius, kind of an older, more family driven version of Tony Stark, sort of. That's Mm -hmm. somewhat appropriate to what you think from the MCU, right? Yeah, based based on the three movies I've seen, that sounds like the character. Somebody who loves his daughter, he's a mentor to Scott Pym, he never stops searching for his lost wife, and he even seems to be kind of a de facto grandfather for Cassie, actually, when you get into Quantumania. To say the absolute least, we're going to find out this week that that's a bit of a retcon from his history in the comics. And so... (laughs) The look on Dwayne's face right now, actually. Yeah. So this week, I have him reading one of Hank Pym's lowest moments. In many ways, one of the lowest moments any of Marvel characters have ever been through. It's the Avengers run in which his wife leaves him and he's expelled from the Avengers. Both things he very well deserves. And we're going to find out about that as we go along. So... Yeah, it's going to be an interesting discussion, to say the least. A lot to get to, but we're going to jump into some comic book news here before we jump into into the stack. First off, Marvel announces a new set of Unforgiven one shots in which is going to start off with Spider Man going up against some vampires. Now, this Unforgiven group is actually a group of vampires, I guess, that have been around and done some different things but spider-man unforgiven number one is kicking off an event storyline that will continue in x-men unforgiven number one captain america unforgiven number one and these are all uh one shots this first one is by writer tim seeley along with artist sid cotian uh which features the return of the bloodsucker group the forgiven i i have not i'm not familiar with the forgiven group of vampires, but uh, you know, the current Moon Knight runs got a got a few vampires running around in it, and it, and it's been kind of fun. Uh, are you familiar with the the this vampire group, the Forgiven? I am not actually. I am not. Uh, that is that is a new one on me. So I am actually reading through the notes right now, and that is the first time I've heard of it. So there you go. Uh, looks like, looking it up real quickly, though, it looks like they, wow, first appeared, yeah, just a decade or so ago in Fear Itself, the Hulk versus Dracula. And there have been 10 appearances so far over the, the last few years. So it is evidently right now relatively a niche thing. Looks like they're mostly mm-hmm. occurring with the X-Men. 
Uh, and I am way behind on the X-Men the last few years. Right. So it does not right. surprise me. Yeah, so if you're interested in this, the, they've got uh, the some preview, the cover and a few preview pages in the article from comicbook.com that we're going to link to this. The Spider-Man Unforgiven book comes out March 1st. The uh, X-Men and Captain America books will follow later on in the in the month of March and then uh, into April. So you can uh, get get a pr- pretty quick resolution actually on the on this particular uh, series. So that's kind of interesting. The other story is not so much a story as it is, I think, something that happens around comic book stores and definitely online all over the place. It is the it is a conversation between uh, Mark Robert Kirkman the creator of Invincible, and two of the artists, uh, Ryan Otley and Corey Walker, talking about Mm -hmm. who Mark Grayson could beat if he had to in a fight. It's a video that Skybound put together and is out on their official YouTube channel. It is is quite amusing. It's about eight minutes long. They they have some... Some of them that they talk about, they actually have drawn... Mark Grayson, Invincible, going up against, say, Homelander or or Superman or different things like this, and the, and they they argue and talk about who they think would win in a fight if the if push comes to sh- comes to shove and they had to do it, which is, I think, something tried and true from a comic book store, right, Dan? If you go to a comic book store, invariably you're going to find discussion as to what would happen if these two characters would meet up who would win Absolutely. in a battle yeah it's it's the old classic where you know who's faster flash or superman who'd win in a fight between batman and and superman and then crossing over the the various companies as well that you know spider-man versus batman spider-man versus superman that sort of thing uh, the sorts of things that rarely get actually resolved yeah. because if Marvel and DC ever do agree to have a crossover, neither of them is going to have their guy lose. So there can never actually be. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, these sorts of fights are all over the place. It's interesting, though, that you're talking about Kirkman because did we ever play Super Fight? Have you ever played Super Fight with me? No. So, Super Fight is a game created by Robert Kirkman. Okay. He actually He actually made it as a Kickstarter years ago. And what it is is essentially a game where everybody draws cards. When you draw a card of some sort of a a character, and it can be either a superhero or it can be Abraham Lincoln or it can be a turtle or whatever, and then also a superpower. So it's going to be like Abraham Lincoln with chainsaw hands versus a turtle with super speed or something like this. And then you fight. And each of you just has to make up reasons why the other one would lose. Right. And then you can right. also put okay. in things like, you know, it's the turtle versus Abraham Lincoln, but it's in space or <laughs> oh, on a shit. giant ball or something like okay. this. Okay. This so Kirkman fun, loves this sort of say. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we have all sorts of different expansions for this. If you've not played it, it's fantastic. But, uh, yeah, so I think I think Invincible would beat an awful lot of people if he needed to. 
Yeah, so. they were they were they were talking about like early early in the Invincible run versus later in the Invincible run, and and yeah, yes. there was a lot of them. They were like, yeah, Invincible Invincible versus Superman. Yeah, it's, Invincible would win, especially especially late in the in the Invincible run, and so it was just a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Highly recommend you either check out the comic book uh, article or we'll have a link directly to the YouTube video so you can see it yourself. Love to hear your thoughts on on those sorts of fights. Uh, maybe in the future we could have something like that. Every once in a while we could have correspondents come in. You you all suggest two, two, uh, two characters and then we can... Uh, each take a side and talk about why we think they could win. That could be kind of fun. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> Dan, do you have a recommendation for us for this week? So I've got two, actually. Uh, the first is I have been basically snowed in here in North Dakota for the better part of, I don't know, it feels like four or five years. So I haven't gotten a chance to get to my comic store for a while. Finally got there, and I got a stack of like 15 books. One of them that I'm really enjoying is called Black Cloak. It's from Image. Written by Kelly Thompson. It's got this really beautiful sort of atmospheric art by Meredith McLaren. Issue 2 just came out, and this is kind of a mystery. And it's set in a world like no other I've really ever seen in comics. It's part noir thriller, part sort of high fantasy. It's got a twist of sci-fi. Just a really, really interesting book. So... If you're interested in trying something that's just a little different, maybe give that one a try. Also, for those who are interested, there's a new movie out called Cocaine Bear. I've gone to see it and can confirm it's a movie about a bear and he does cocaine. I, yeah, I, I saw I saw a tweet that I absolutely loved. They, they said, Cocaine Bear is the Citizen Kane of movies when it comes to forest animals taking illicit drugs there you go everything's got to have its niche i guess yeah it's uh, it's it's actually really entertaining i do have to note though that i think it's interesting how this has become so successful not because it's a great movie because it's not a great movie it's a b movie with b movie acting Plots that don't really make a lot of sense, and special effects that in many cases are pretty rudimentary. But, you know, you look at the fact that Ant-Man just suffered the biggest second week drop of any MCU movie. A lot yeah. of the blockbusters that have been coming out, people are just kind of getting tired of the blockbusters. I think there's just something sort of simple enough about Cocaine Bear that people are like, yeah. That's different. I just want to see it. What worries me now is all the calls for like Cocaine Bear 2 and Cocaine Bear 3 and the like. Not everything needs to have a sequel. One of the beautiful things about this is that it isn't a sequel, right? So there you go. So like, have we all convinced you, Dwayne? Are you on your way no. to go and see this? No, the I, I will tell you the only thing that actually would has made me kind of want to go see the movie is I I like Isaiah Whitlock Jr., who is in The Wire, is in this film, plays Bob, I guess. And sure. uh he he just 
I just, I really like that actor and I liked his character in The Wire. He's probably nothing like that in this movie, but he was one of the things that stood out to me when I saw the trailer for this. And, and for a partial second, I thought about possibly doing it. And then I'm like, no, no, I can't. I can't bring (laughs) myself to actually go see Cocaine Bear. No. All right. Well, there you go. So for those of you who maybe are wondering if you've ever seen Tucker and Dale versus Evil, that's probably the closest sort of vibe that I can give to it, which is it is goofy fun with lots of people losing various arms and legs in hideous ways. Okay. Well, on that note, let's move (laughs) on and let's talk about the stack for this week. Dan, what books did we look at this week? So this, this might not be as much fun as Cocaine Bear, just as a note, because we've got some interesting stuff this week. I actually am interested to see what you think of a lot of these, because we're starting out with Three Tales to Astonish books uh, from back in the 60s, and then we are going to read Avengers 212 to 230 in parts. We're skipping around, so it's about eight books over the course of about an 18-book run. All right, so now we know what books we're looking at. Why did you pick these particular books? So I actually had I actually had a plan. Uh, the okay. the first of <laughs> That's these. That's good. Yeah, it's it's sometimes it happens. So Tales to Astonish number twenty seven is the first appearance of Hank Pym. Tales to Astonish thirty five is the first appearance of Hank Pym as Ant Man or as a superhero. Tales to Astonish number forty four is the first Janet Pym. And also the first, actually no, it's the first Janet Van Dyne, excuse me, and the first Wasp. And then Avengers 212 to 230, taken together, there's a storyline that runs through it. Sometimes it's a full issue here and there, sometimes it's just part of issues, that has come to be known as the Trial of Yellow Jacket. And it's essentially the story of sort of the fall of Hank Pym. And how he ends up losing his wife, losing his uh, membership in the Avengers, and sort of basically getting himself kicked out of Marvel Comics completely for the better part of a decade or more. Yeah, that uh, that was that was an interesting set of books. What's uh, what? Let's, let's talk about the creator profile, though, first, before we dive in and talk about these books in particular. Sure. Who are we so, spotlighting this week? So, I guess my first question is, did you know that Stan Lee had a brother? Even better... I did not. <laughs> did you know that Stan's brother actually was also a writer for Marvel, and that he helped to create a number of the House of Ideas' most beloved characters? Almost nobody does know that, by the way. Partly because of the fact that his brother's name is Larry Lieber and he is Stanley Martin Lieber's younger brother and was actually a writer and artist in the comic industry for nearly as long as Stan was. So Stan changed his name early from Stanley Lieber to Stan Lee. Um, this was very common. Uh, Jack Kirby's name is not actually Jack Kirby. Uh, a lot of Jewish comic writers and artists in the early ages of comics um, sort of changed their name to make it so that people would not know 
that the the creators were Jewish. Uh, this unfortunately, was a relatively standard practice in all sorts of American media back in the day. So, Larry never did that. He was credited as Larry Lieber in all of his work. And he actually worked at Timely Comics, which would eventually become Marvel, way back when he was a teenager, uh, like 17, 16 years old. He was working at that. He did freelance comic art regularly in the 40s and 50s. And officially, which is pertinent to today's reading, he's credited as a co-creator not only of Iron Man and Thor, but also of Ant-Man. Uh, unofficially, he actually, because of the fact that he worked so closely with his brother and a lot of the ideas he had, may have ended up credited to Stan Lee. Uh, which is a problem, by the way, that not just Larry has, but lots of people mm -hmm. <laughs> worked for Marvel Comics at that time. But there's a good chance that he may have had a, a hand in a lot of other characters that we now know and love. In the 70s, he actually also continued to work in comics, moving on to be an editor at Atlas. And then back in the 80s, Stan brought him back to Marvel, where he edited the Marvel UK line. His relationship with his brother actually seems to be kind of weird. They worked together forever. Stan kept hiring him, but it was kind of rocky at times. Later life, they actually became sort of estranged from each other. And Lieber, in many ways, is kind of believed to have, have thought that being Stan's brother was actually as much of a curse as a blessing to him in the industry. For instance, he, he basically figured he could never get work at DC because everybody at DC would think he's just a spy sent in to help Stan find out what's going on at the uh, Distinguished Competition. So, right. even so, the two of them actually worked together a lot, and they did make this lasting contribution to American culture, including our first story today, which is the introduction of Ant-Man, which was written by Larry, and edited by Stan. I did not, did not have that, that connection in there. That was, that mm -hmm. was, uh, that, that's pretty great. Yeah. So so let's talk about Tales to Astonish then, because this is this is a rather unassuming kind of introduction to Hank Pym in the very first story, Tales to Astonish twenty seven. I think it's fascinating actually, because this was actually written in nineteen sixty one or published in nineteen sixty one. It was written by uh, Larry Lieber, um, drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Dick Ayers. Uh, lettered Army Simic, and the colorist was Stan Goldberg. Stan Lee, of course, was the editor. The title of the first story in Tales to Astonish number 27 is The Man in the Ant Hill. And as a note, there's actually a number of stories in all these. They were anthology books, yeah. so they're short stories. They're not full comics. But in this one, we find a scientist named Hank Pym, who's laughed at by the scientific establishment because of his ridiculous theories, because of that, he goes kind of into hiding, does his own science, and it turns out he's not crazy. And in fact, he's able to develop a growth potion that allows him to both shrink and then grow objects and even people. While testing this, he accidentally shrinks himself down and falls off of a window ledge, at which point he ends up in an anthill outside. Only his, his scientific knowledge and you know, his, his human mind, his judo skills... And this single friendly ant that sort of lets him ride it to freedom, allow him to, mm -hmm. to not be killed. He climbs back up, increases himself in size, and once he is safe and back at regular size, he believes that his discovery is just too dangerous for people. And he actually resolves to flush all of the uh, things down the, the sink or put them away in a safe 
and dedicate himself to more practical science in the future. And that's the intro of, of Hank Pym. Yeah, it's 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 short. It's only like eight, ten pages, something like that, and and it, it goes quick. But I get I guess more of it's just it's unassuming insofar as it's just very straightforward, very simple story, and you don't expect that it's going to lead to this character becoming such a a a, uh, a bigger part of of the Marvel universe. And I think even more than being unassuming, it's in the wrong genre. If you think about it, this is actually more like an EC Comics type of horror suspense type of thing, where what the story is really about is how frightening it is for this guy to get shrunken down to tiny size and then end up running around mm -hmm. in an anthill trying to escape from ants that are trying to cover him in honey and eat him or, or attack him because he's in their lair or whatever. And so... You know, when it first came out, Tales to Astonish did not have superheroes in it. It had some science fiction stories in it. It had some horror stories. A lot of times, because they couldn't do real horror, it was more stuff like this, where they would be suspense stories that had some sort of a twist ending or something like that. Because we're still very much under a strong comic code, so there's just a litany of things they cannot do in the pages of a supposed horror story. So it's relatively tame, but it still very much is not a superhero story, right? There is no bad no, guy. No. There's no, no crime. Nope. So No, it's 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 pretty like I said, it's just it just sort of like it's I don't know, it reminds me a little bit of like a Tales from the Dark Side sort of kind of story. Absolutely. That is exactly what it would be. And so yeah. now the interesting thing is that Fantastic Four number one was released on August 8th, 1961. The cover date of November 1961. This Tales to Astonish story came out on September 28th, 1961, with a January 1962 cover date. Meaning that Tales to Astonish was written and probably drawn before Fantastic Four number one came out. So essentially before the start of the Marvel Comics superhero renaissance, because that was the first superhero book that Marvel did. With the response that you got to FF number one, Marvel started to quickly change. And one of the changes was, superheroes obviously were popular, maybe we should find some more. Well, a few months ago, they had some guy getting chased around by an ant, and then he was riding it, right? And he had a superpower, yep. they just... Looked uh -huh. at it more as a scientific type of thing, like an accident, than a superpower. So in issue number 35, like basically the next year in 19, late 1962, we have a story called Return of the Ant-Man. And in this, Pym actually comes back into Tales to Astonish. He's been spending his time working on an anti-radiation gas for the government. And even though he stopped his shrinking and growing stuff, he's now sort of become fascinated by ants after seeing them close up in the previous story. So he's studying ants in his spare time and developing a helmet that allows him to communicate with them. Because he's developed this anti-radiation gas, a bunch of, as the story calls them, commies end up attacking Hank's lab in search of the formula for the gas, and he ends up saving himself and his colleagues by taking that shrinking 
potion out of the safe and deciding to use it along with the helmet he's got, which essentially allows him in true Ant-Man style to sort of assemble his army of ants, overrun the bad guys, and then he doesn't show who he is. He actually sneaks back off and brings himself back to, to regular size before the end of the story. Yeah. So he's got a costume, he's got his unstable molecules and everything else. So he is a superhero at this point. But he is also keeping himself very sort of under the radar rather than letting people know what he's doing. Yeah, he's got the that that separation like we saw with Tony Stark and Iron Man where nobody knew who the other was and and that sort of thing. And so yeah, they like the uh, his lab, his colleagues don't have any idea where he is and, mm-hmm. and you know, don't know that he has this serum that he can get bigger or small, shrink down or, yep. or, or pop back up to regular size again. But yeah, he uses it to, 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 to save people. He, he actually does the superhero thing. He saves the day. He, 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 he gets the bad guys and, and, and that sort of thing all all in another very short story too because this this again was one of those scenarios where there was more than one story in this book yep and those lighter stories remain what they were before one of them's kind of a suspense story one of them's more of a traditional science fiction story but what we're doing is actually watching marvel evolve in real time right they're publishing stuff Mm -hmm. they're getting feedback from readers and the like and getting feedback from sales and they're actually evolving their titles and their characters to sort of fit what's going to be this new, very superhero-heavy model that they're going to have moving forward. So, now we move a year later. And the next time that we're going to take a look at him, Hank Pym's had a few other adventures at this point. This is not his third appearance. Uh, but it is the first appearance in issue number 44 of Janet Van Dyne. So the story is called The Creature from Cosmos. And again, you can see how things are changing because instead of the book being in number 35, one-third superhero and two-thirds other stuff, now it's a double-sized Ant-Man story at the beginning. So it's two-thirds superhero and one-third other stuff. There's one sci-fi story at the end, right? Um, It's literally like this bulldozer of superhero is just sort of rolling over Tales to Astonish, right? But, so we get twice as much superhero story, twice the heroes. Uh, first, we actually get an extended backstory for Hank Pym. We learn his first wife, Maria, was killed by Hungarian con- uh, communists when they honeymooned there. She was actually, and her father actually were Hungarian, evidently, and had been chased out of the country and taken refuge in America. And then when she went back, they saw her and they took their vengeance on her. Um... He actually used her phrase, go to the ants, thou sluggard, as his motivation to study ants and become an ant-themed crime fighter. So it didn't just happen by accident now. It was actually motivated, almost Batman style, by the death of somebody he cared about. And we also see that he starts to think that taking on evil is kind of lonely work. And he sort of wished he had a partner. This is sounding very Batman at this point, right? Kind of. Um, Yeah. When Dr. Vernon Van Dyne is then killed by a creature from the planet Cosmos that came to Earth using his gamma bean projector, Pym actually teams up with Van Dyne's daughter. He uses an experimental procedure to give Janet Van Dyne shrinking powers 
gives her a costume that he just happened to have on hand that was a wasp costume, which is a little weird, and a, a helmet, uh, and then actually uses the power of science to create a compound that will destroy the invading creature, which interestingly enough is made of substances that are similar to things that are related to ant um, sort of biology. So a number of things in here. First off, while Pym himself just sort of has the helmet and the powers to shrink and grow, uh, using the little, um, it's not automatic by the way. Did you see they've got the little like vials on their belts? So they've got the shrinking yeah. and growing there. Uh, it's not like in, in innate. But when he actually modifies her, like mutates her essentially, so that when she shrinks, she sprouts wings and antennae. Yes. Mm -hmm. So she is actually kind of turned into a bug a little bit when she gets small. Um, but what did you think of this one? Now we get an introduction of Janice. It, it was, it was, it was a little weird. Like, so the thing, like, first of all, it just sort of felt a little weird that there was just suddenly this backstory that, that, that was suddenly, it feels, it feels really important when you're reading it. And it just sort of appears in this story where it had not been kind of previously talked about. And like, it then starts to make sense. But the other thing is actually kind of the introduction of, of Janet Van Dyne. She's like young, like very young. Correct. Um, he talks, he, we, we find out like he calls her basically a child practically in, in this. And, and it seems like there is, uh, you know, and, and she immediately is falling all over him and wants like, his attention and all this sort of thing. And that feels kind of, kind of weird and gross and that sort of thing. But it's just, it, it, it was just, I don't know. It just sort of like, it, it kind of was a little off putting. I, I have to be honest with you. Like the first two stories, like I get it. And it, and it felt pretty solid and interesting and good. And then it's like, this starts to get a little weird and then we're going to go careening into weirdville once we get into the avengers stories because it 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 gets really bad from there yep um the i mean the i would say that looking at this book i would say that it probably seems like pim is in his mid 30s something like that and janet is probably at like 18 19 kind of a, a late teens would be the ages that i yeah. would think looking at uh looking at the book and he very obviously is like yeah she's way too young for me so it is weird and it is creepy as a note this is totally standard for stan lee at this point because if you look at fantastic four and everybody's so used to it from 40 years of seeing them but even early on he is like graying at the temples and she is very young you know and you look at the X-Men, the early X-Men's, there are times when Professor Xavier's sort of like, oh, Jean, she's she's very pretty, but I probably shouldn't be attracted to her because she's my student. Not because she's 40 years younger than you, but because she's your student, Charles. That's, that's why. So 
there's a little bit of projection probably from middle-aged Stan Lee going on in these in these books. But in any case, it is it is weird, but it is set up very early in their dynamic that he yeah. is a little bit standoffish and she is sort of head over heels in love with him. And I think that what we'll see, especially early on in the books that uh, that we read later, that continues, you know, for the first few issues and the like, what you're seeing. Uh, and she's constantly yeah. trying to sort of just make his life better, even if it impacts her own adversely. So a lot of that's there. The Hank Pym story, too. I think it might have been that there was just falling off a ledge and into an anthill is just not a heroic enough backstory for a Marvel superhero, you know? He had no pathos yeah, in it I at mean, all. Right. He, he just, when we first are introduced to him, he's just a scientist seeing if he could do this thing. And mm -hmm. sure enough, he was able to do the thing. And that doesn't seem like, it's like, that's not the best of origins or best of reasons to be like, why did you make this serum that makes you shrink down or go back to full size? Yep. It's like, yeah, that doesn't, that there, I suppose there did need to be a little bit more uh, meat on the bone when it came to an origin story. But this is, this is, uh, this is, this is kind of like a little bit over into the deep end of the pool sort of thing for me, I guess. This is 1960s Marvel. The, the pool is all deep. There is no, there is no shallow end. <laughs> It's, it's all melodrama. Okay. Like, it's all melodrama. Everybody has to have okay. something tragic going on or, or whatever. So, the other thing I'd like to note is that in all of these stories, the fact that Pym is a scientist is very important and it is celebrated. Like, science is looked at as this thing that's going to save people. It's going to save the world. You know, if it's... He's developing the anti-radiation gas or any of this other stuff. Um, he is respected for the science, and it's a very Cold War and Atomic Age kind of, of storytelling. The other thing I would like to note is that the actual way they save the day is one of the dumbest things you will ever see. So they develop the gun or the, the bullet that's going to vaporize this big monster, right? And then they put it in the gun. But even though they're both able to be normal-sized people, for some reason, he has the ants take the gun and move it all the way across town for him. And then he doesn't get big and pick it up and pulls the trigger. He has the ants move the gun into place. And then as a tiny little guy, he stands there and pulls with all his might against the trigger like inside uh -huh. the actual finger guard to somehow or another he could have just ran up there with the gun and shot the monster but no he had to use his shrinking power in his ants because he's ant-man so things best not to think about commitment to the bit that's what i'm gonna <sighs> say commitment to the bit yeah there was that so it was it was absolutely ridiculous but still awesome so these were simple, fun stories. Uh, there was not a whole lot there that was particularly uh, unusual. I do think the main themes that come out of this, Hank is a scientist. He's relatively good at being a scientist. He is 
somebody who's cold with kind of a little bit of a tragic history and things tend to go bad for him. And Janet is young and she's in love. And she's been horribly mutated by her future boyfriend. I guess that that asterisk on there as well. So. There's, there, there's that too, <laughs> yes. All right. So anything else from the 1960s you wanted to take a look at or any questions you've got before we head on? This is the start. They're going to move from here into being full-time Avengers. Both of them are founding members of the Avengers. They'll be with that team a lot. They will go off and have adventures on their own and also a lot of adventures together. For a while, they will leave the Avengers because that membership changes every once in a while uh, and go off either with other teams, etc. And then, in the 80s, they return to the Avengers uh, right around a little after 200. And in fact, the story that we pick up in 212 is really Yellow Jacket's first mission with the Avengers since returning to the team as Yellow Jacket after making Ultron and just about destroying the world a few times and becoming Yellow Jacket and losing his mind and just about destroying the world and etc etc so we're skipping yeah. a lot of story there, there's there, there's been some things going on with Hank and, and Janet since then they they're now more of a they're now more of a couple and everything as well and yeah this is this picks up Scar, uh, Scarlet Witch, Vision, some of them that were on the roster of the Avengers leave, and Janet and Hank uh, come in at, in this more pared-down group of of heroes that are making the current Avengers run. Yep. And it was somewhere around, like, issue number 60 or something like that that, the, that they got married of Avengers. So you're talking sometime back in the 60s they actually got married. So they've been... A couple, and in fact, a married couple for a long time now at the at that point. That is one thing that Lee was not afraid to do, was to actually marry off his characters who'd had long-standing relationships. Because Reed and Sue tied the knot. Certain point, same thing with Janet and Hank. It's now been quite a long time since then. And when we pick up... Yeah. Uh, Am I am I correct to to say that your temperature on these books is not that they're your favorite overall comics we've read yet? Oh gosh, there is. I we talked about this. I I've read about five hundred or so comics since we started doing the podcast, and it these. This run of comic books is probably up there in like my least favorite or second least favorite set of books that I've had that I've gotten the pleasure to read during the during this uh, during this um, yep during this run. Yeah, that's kind of and and I get exactly why that is. I'm gonna have some counterpoints for you though. So also okay. just as a note, it's interesting because. This run is right around the time I first started reading Marvel Comics. So I would have been, when these came out in like 1981, 1982, I would have been 12, 13 years old and just really starting to dig into comic books. So these would be 
I'd been in DC for maybe a couple of years. Uh, I, I started with DC and then I moved into Marvel. So when we get to it, I was, uh, I was looking earlier, Avengers 223 with the great cover with uh, Hawkeye shooting Scott Lang Ant-Man is act with his uh, Ant-Man's actually hanging on to the arrowhead of the bow yeah. or of the of the arrow is the first Avengers book I bought. At least the first new one I bought. So this is classic stuff for me. But let's go ahead and take a look. See what we had. You ready for this? Yes. We're going to start mm -hmm. talking about these a, a little bit at a time. So we're going to start with Avengers 212 to 214. This was written by Jim Shooter, drawn by Alan Kupperberg, inked Dan Green, uh, Janice Chang on letters, and Bob Sean on color. Not going to talk about who did each individual one, but on other books we'll be talking about. Stephen Grant did some of the writing. Alan Zelenitz did some of the writing. Roger Stern did some of it which is one reason why things kind of get a little weird sometimes, because all these different writers taking the plot in different directions. Bob Hall did some art, Alan Weiss, Greg LaRoque, Mark Bright, Sal Basema, and Al Milgram, which also a lot of churn there. Brett Breeding and Joe Sinnott helped out Green on the inks. Uh, Joe Rosen and Jim Novak did some of the letters. And Bob Sharon and Christy Scheel also has helped on colors on some or other of the books. So a lot of different creators on these. But in any case, starting in 212, things actually begin to fall apart for Hank Pym. Members of the team start out sort of just being shown in their domestic scenes, getting up in the morning, visiting Iron Man's being a Lothario as he always is, and and Thor is hanging out actually in human form as a doctor, seeing patients, that sort of stuff. Everybody's relatively peaceful and happy, except for Janet and Hank. They're shown getting ready for a party. Janet's asking about, you know, which dress should I wear or whatever. And for no particular reason, Hank is in his yellow jacket uniform and he just blasts one of the dresses. Like wallets in her hand, essentially vaporizes it. Um, and then he sort of just flies away and deserts her when they're on their way to the mansion, uh, going to the Avengers as well. The Avengers have a short meeting, and then they're all called away to Washington, D.C., where they end up fighting this out-of-time barbarian and sorceress. Yellowjacket actually has some troubles with his suit malfunctioning, and when he gets it working, he actually blasts the sorceress, Linnea, right in the back, just after Cap has convinced her to sort of stop fighting and surrender. Linnea then takes this the wrong way, strikes back at everyone, and eventually the Wasp has to save Yellowjacket from being killed by her when she stops a blast that is heading for him. To make it all worse, Cap then recommends a court-martial of Yellowjacket for that attack. While he's waiting for the trial, Hank gets a really bad idea and decides to make a robot that he can use to defeat the Avengers. It's only going to have one weak spot that he knows, and he's going to send it in while they're doing the court-martial. It's going to defeat everyone else. He's going to hit it in the spot, save everyone, and they'll forget about all of this and just be happy to have him back. Unfortunately, Wasp comes in, tries to stop him from this crazy plan, and he actually knocks her to the ground with kind of this vicious roundhouse slap, leaving her with a significant black eye, and 
essentially threatening her that she'd better not tell anybody about any of this because since she knows about it now, yeah. she's complicit in it as well. It's an ugly scene. Yep. Play along or else. Yep. And then he does have the robot attack during the hearing. He himself fails to stop the creation, seemingly dooming the team. But luckily Jan is there, actually is able to hit it in the spot that's needed, stops the robot, saves the day. Everyone sees through what Hank's ploy was and says, dude, you know, you're pretty much done here. And they don't even do the court martial. He just walks out and goes, yeah, I, I know I'm done. 214, Hank has been thrown out of the Avengers. He returns back to Janet's and his house, uh, tries to explain things. To her credit, she doesn't really have anything on it. She just says, you know, I want a divorce. She has the staff pack up his bags, offers him some money so that he can continue to research or whatever in the settlement. He declines, says, I've already got lots of money from my books. I don't need yours. This is a lie. He ends up in some CD Roach motel. He has nothing. And we don't then really see him for a couple issues uh, as the remaining Avengers end up going off, taking on Ghost Rider and Molecule Man and doing other things. So this is the start of the fall of Yellow Jacket. What do you think, Dwayne? This was terrible. This was actually terrible watching this. And terrible... Like, I did not, this whole, these books, like 212 to through the, the start of 214 were uncomfortable to read because it was, it, it was a man that was self-destructing and he was taking his wife with him and like domestic violence. Uh, there was just, it was. It was disgusting, actually, and and like, I, I'm an adult and I'm reading this, and I and I don't like this. I can't imagine kids reading this. And and you were saying that you're you know, in your in your preteens to maybe teenage years when this was coming out, and this was geared towards you. Yeah, no, but I I think, and maybe this is partly a generational thing because you're a bit younger than me. You know, when I was a kid. I grew up watching MASH with my family, you know, and those, yeah, MASH is bad. those guys are not role models, you know? No. I mean, do you have, do you have any idea how much trouble those guys would be in these days with the, the quote unquote hijinks they were, they were up to? So media was different back then, but in some ways I think that one of the things about it was because you didn't have things specifically for kids and adults you had comics right there was there was only one rating because the comics code authority allowed what it allowed and it didn't allow what it didn't allow this was pretty hard hitting but i also will say that it shows that comics were trying to tell more relevant stories than maybe i think a lot of people gave them credit for in the early 80s that this is awful but, you know, as we move through, I think it also deals with topics that, that were real things. And, you know, the, the way it was dealt with, the fact you were uncomfortable, the fact you knew this was a guy who was absolutely just destroying himself in real time. 
what is interesting though is you know i was i started reading here and i didn't have much experience with who yellow jacket was but there were a lot of fans who'd been fans of marvel comics for 20 years at this point and many of them were big fans of ant-man or yellow jacket many mm. many of them were big fans of janet right Mm-hmm. This was an extremely controversial set of issues. People were angry, right? Uh, that they were angry not only at what Yellow Jacket had done to Janet, they were mad at what the writers had done to Yellow Jacket. Yeah. Yeah. I could I could definitely see that. And so, you know, that's the other thing is that it's this weird thing with a character where you can be mad at, at Yellow Jacket for what he did. But in the back of a lot of these readers' minds, they were like, this is a character I've loved for years. What are these writers doing? Because it was relatively obvious this is not going to be a storyline that's easy this to get away from. This is going to end well. Yeah. Right? And in fact, right. it is something that I'm pretty sure the writers and the artists did not understand how much difficulty this was going to put them in for that character later on. Because when it comes down to it, a comic character is, an, is a piece of IP. And one of your jobs is not to damage the IP, right? And they shattered the hell out of Yellow Jacket. Um, yeah. And what's interesting is there's times later on where you even see that, um, that Jim Shooter comes out and says, well, my script didn't have him doing that. It was just drawn by somebody who's used to drawing big motions, and so he made it a big slap, and it was only supposed to be a push or something like this. I don't know anyone believes him, but they, you know, to their credit, they relatively quickly realized what had happened, that they had to deal with it, and then the rest of this story, I think you see... You see consequences. You also see, in some ways, a lot of people making bad decisions within the Avengers in terms of how they deal with this. Because I think that later on, yeah. you know, you get angry at Jarvis. It, <laughs> you get angry at some of these other guys. Um, you maybe get a little angry at Iron Man for some of his choices. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But, yeah, this is, this is tough stuff. It's, yeah, there was just... <laughs> It was just it's so it was so rough to to watch and and read and like these are really kind of dense were densely worded stories too and there was a lot of panels per page and there was a lot of exposition trying to be 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 conveyed as well and i think i think there was an attempt at some nuance here but it just it really did not go over well for me at all. I think the other thing that's interesting is how much stuff gets snuck in under the comic code. You know, you look at some of the issues of economic power, because that's another of the weird things about Janet and Hank's life, is she's got all the money. And he doesn't like the fact that she's a better hero than him, because it makes him, you know, it emasculates him. He doesn't like the fact that she's got all the money. There's just a lot of things that he has trouble with in that relationship. So let's move on to 
kind of the rest or the kind of the middle portion uh, yeah, of this story? Middle portion is not a whole lot. It's in from 215 to 227 there's or 226 I guess there's some significant developments. But almost almost an entire year of Avengers comics basically just have Hank in exile from the team. Important thing is though that Jan actually takes over as leader. She changes her name back to Janet Van Dyne. Uh, there's a couple panels about her getting a quick divorce in the Dominican Republic. And Hank actually then is approached sort of by an egghead who asks him for help on a cybernetic arm for his niece, niece Trish Star. Egghead's an old villain of Ant-Man's, and he actually again betrays Pym, uses Trish to frame him for the theft of an adamantium stockpile. Pym ends up in prison. The Avengers are off facing cosmic threats. And they actually end up recruiting She-Hulk and Hawkeye to the team. Egghead actually returns then and is looking to create some cell rejuvenation formula to make himself rich. He's given up on just straight out um, supervillainy and wants to try just science instead. Uh, believes he can, he can attain total power this way. One weird twist, Jan actually is lonely during these books and she starts dating Tony Stark. She is completely unaware that he is actually her teammate Iron Man Tony Stark, obviously, is completely aware that he is dating his teammate, yeah. Janet. Uh, Thor finds out what's going on or sees them together. He is not amused and says, you've got to take care yeah. of this. Captain America is not happy about it either. Captain America is not happy either. The papers get the story and Hank actually ends up reading about the romance in prison and about the fact that eventually Tony ends up breaking Janet's heart by calling it off with her. Because, you know, she gets, technically, the papers think that, technically, she breaks it off with him once he finally admits that he's Iron Man and that they are teammates. So, yeah. He wants to continue the relationship, but reveals finally that he is, in fact, Iron Man. And she's like, wait a minute, this is, this is not really something that should work out. And she's... She's like, she's thinking about Hank's feelings throughout all this, which is, I, I'm, I'm sure, partially realistic, but also kind of difficult to, to read as well. And I, I think that some of the things that bothered me a little bit were how, in many cases, a lot of the Avengers, the male Avengers, really are looking for a way out for Hank. I think a lot of them... Yep. Sort of like, I wonder how we, you know, what do we need to do to just get things back to normal? And yep. they don't really realize that normal is not really an option anymore. And in fact, in many cases, they're bringing him in or they're, you know, doing things that probably are not thinking of Janet as much as they maybe should be. Sexual politics just in general means a huge part of this run. Uh, you get the She-Hulk added. You get Captain Marvel uh, slash Quasar added. Both of these characters then, as female characters, sort of change the Avengers because they'd almost always previously been a group that's six guys and one woman, right? And then now it's suddenly you've got like maybe three or four male characters and three women in the group. And so, and this is something Janet's doing intentionally since she took over as the chairman. Yeah. Some of them, like Hawkeye, do not do a great job of dealing with having female teammates. Uh, and in fact, no. 
he uh, he does not come out of this looking well either. So if you're a Hawkeye fan, also these books, not a great look for your uh, for your hero. They they just the the thing I guess that kind of bothers me when I when you're when you're reading through some of these books is is what like you talked about there was there was a lot of concern about Hank and a lot less concern about J- Janet and how how each of them is handling everything that's going on and like it it, it just is kind of it, it's kind of gross and like seeing seeing all these male characters the 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 male gaze throughout all this is just unbelievable there is so much sexism in this every time a male character can talk about a female character's looks during these books they do every time and like and even even the women to each other are not very nice to each other like you in in one of the books you have janet van dyne like created an outfit for she hulk jennifer walters to wear and then they suddenly get in this fight and Janet's like, you better not rip any of those clothes. So she ends strips down to a bikini top and bottom and ends up fighting in a bikini top and bottom because she did. She doesn't want to, you know, rip the clothes. It was just, it was, it was just sort of yuck. That was why I just did not like any of it. And he, and like Hank gets, Hank ends up in prison because of the the plan that Egghead had, but it it also he's kind of like hitting on this Trish Star that's like her his niece, and and it's just it's so just over the top sort of just bad and and just makes you feel kind of yucky just reading the all of this. Yep, well that is that is absolutely correct. I I think it's also one of those things where reading them now, I would notice it more. I mean, if you watched 1980s television, you know, this is the age no. of Miami Vice and Magnum P.I. And, you know, Magnum's one of my favorite characters ever, but I don't know that he was much better in many of these terms. You know, there were... No. the basically almost all media from the early 80s late 70s is dallas and and all of this sort of stuff it's just fundamentally flawed in a lot of ways so that said i do think that as we move into these last issues it gets to be really interesting because things actually come to a head in the last four issues of what's called this trial of yellow jacket because while Hank Pym is in prison, Egghead actually decides to kick him while he's down. And he frames him for crime, destroying his life and reputation. How he does this is we first off look at an entire issue that sort of just recaps Hank's life and career while he's waiting prison, awaiting trial. So you see it kind of through the perspective of some of his different friends and stuff like that. And then in issue 228... Egghead actually assembles a group of supervillains. He sends them to attack the courthouse on the day of Hank's trial. They kidnap him, but actually one of the villains ends up being captured and reveals that, in fact, 
Pym was not kidnapped. He had paid them to break him out, which then essentially succeeds in destroying his reputation, means that he's a wanted man, everybody's looking for him. The Avengers do eventually, though, use a cerebral scanner that uh, Tony Stark has invented a couple issues previous to find out that Chakra was actually lying, although he didn't know he was lying, and Egghead is alive, and he'd been setting up Pym all along. Once he'd captured Pym, Egghead actually asked him to help him finish his longevity machine, and Hank does so, but instead of working on Egghead's project, he actually somehow, out of, you know, tin snips and, and coat hangers or whatever, creates a cybernetic harness that lets him actually defeat Egghead and his entire supervillain team single-handedly, just as the Avengers arrive. He's standing there, kind of won, but Egghead is still not completely defeated, finds a gun, is pointing it at Pym and going to shoot him, and Hawkeye knocks an arrow, actually puts it into the gun, gun explodes, Egghead dies, and Pym essentially is saved from that last attack by, uh, by Hawkeye. Issue 230 then wraps up the story. Pym is exonerated of all of the theft, kidnapping, other charges. Uh, Hawkeye is found innocent in the death of Egghead, Egghead after a powerful defense by Hank, and Hank and Janet say their farewells. Uh, he gives ja the Yellow Jacket suit to the Avengers, and Janet is comforted by the team as he leaves the mansion for the airport. So, there you go. That's the, uh, that's the ending. Yeah. It was really the best part of this story. Like, or, like, the most satisfying, I guess, conclusion that I think you could have come up with based on where this story started and and how it had kind of, uh, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, just sort of kind of went through the, the you know, periodically through those, those issues leading up to this. Yep. No, it was, it was awful in that, you know, obviously Yellow Jacket is kind of taking off with, uh, with a couple of the other folks, like the Egghead's niece and, and another uh, couple of folks. He's left the mansion. He's left sort of the Avengers behind. What I liked about this is that for it being supposedly a kid's book, right? A kid's medium. Those two acted in about as grown up a fashion as you could have at the end. In that Hank never really uh, asked for, you know, full forgiveness he never really made excuses. He's like, man, I made mistakes and they were serious mistakes and I've broken things I can't fix. And so he knows that he's not going to get back with Janet. Janet also is presented as somebody who still cares for Hank. She doesn't like what's happened in any way, but she never really in any way presents anything but that strength of, I've made my decision, and now it's done. We're just going to clean up the loose ends, and you go your way and I go my way. And that ends up actually being kind of like you talked about him not really trying to get forgiveness, just apologizing. Like, he, he does seem like he's sincere mm -hmm. about his apology, but, but, like, even as we're leading up to this, like, his it's an evolution because 
leading up to this, he actually is like, all I have to do is win Janet back and things, things will be, they, mm-hmm. things will start to turn around and, and, and I'll, you know, thing, thing, things will get right. You know, while he's in prison, while he's, you know, after while he's like dealing with egghead and trying to yep. do do this thing for egghead that that's where he's coming from immediately after this so the fact that he kind of ends up there and he speaks on behalf of hawkeye yep. because they're doing basically the same court martial or inquiry proceeding that led you know hank pym into becoming court-martialed and getting kicked out of the avengers he speaks to the fact that you know no there wasn't i i was there wasn't excessive force used there there was a a threat on my life and Mm -hmm. and uh and he did what he needed to do and that the the interesting thing about hank pym is that he is in many ways a really admirable character in that he is he wants to do good. He is brilliant. He's made great things. But he also has this side that just screws things up in ways that are catastrophic. You know, he creates an Ultron that just about destroys the planet. He destroys his relationship with his wife by being violent at her because he's mad about stuff that's completely not her fault. He, he has just made all of these mistakes and it's kind of a core element of who Hank Pym is that he ends up being a guy who can just never be trusted and a guy who things never work for. And it's usually his fault that they don't work because he just screws it up. I find these books really tough, but I also think that they are They're actually, you know, you you talk about adult comic books. And usually in comic books, that has nothing to do with content that actually is fit for adults. It's more like juvenile content, right? You know, it's, it's basically just sex and violence type of stuff. But this is actually an attempt at making a, a grown-up story in the media or in the, in the comics medium. So I just, I just, I look at this and I look at something like Demon in a Bottle mm-hmm. and I feel like, I feel like Demon in a Bottle was done in a way that was so, so much better in so far as like, I, I guess my biggest thing is it's one thing to be self-destructive and like tear yourself down it's another thing to take others with you. And I think that, I think that's what this story has to it that I'm struggling so hard with it because of, because he basically destroys, you know, Janet in the process of, of destroying himself. Well, he doesn't destroy Janet. She actually comes into her yes. own in many cases. I think that one of the things that you would see, in, or that I see looking at these books, is that starting them off, she is sublimating her own interests and her own needs and her own success to trying to make yeah. a, a husband whose self-confidence can't deal with a wife who's actually good at things. 
So she she tries yeah. to sort of not be up to her potential, just to not essentially make him feel bad. And around issue 214, she just says to hell with that and starts really coming into her own as a hero and as a leader and everything else. So this is really sort of where the Wasp really becomes the Janet Van Dyne character who is the one moving forward as in a sort of a fashion icon and a one of the more successful and powerful women in the Marvel Universe. And she kind of needed to get rid of him to do that because he was just a sad sack who was going to hold her back. But it is interesting, though, that you, you, know, you talk about Demon in a Bottle versus this, and that's a great comparison. But are you saying really that you don't like the story, that the story isn't as good, or just that the actions of the main character are more hideous or heinous in this one? Like, are you disliking the story or are it's, you disliking... It's, it's probably both. <laughs> I, I probably dislike... I dislike the character to the point where it's actually having an adverse effect on the whole story. Mm -hmm. I feel like the story in general isn't as good and specifically because of, I think, some larger issues that are outside of Hank, like how the female characters are portrayed by the male characters, the way the male characters don't seem to care about the female characters as much. I, I actually think the whole idea of Janet becoming the, the head of the Avengers, I think was, was, was great and, and surprising at that point in the story. Like it's one thing to sort of kind of shrug off this guy that has been kind of keeping you down, but like, that is the ultimate way of just kind of lifting yourself up is to say, I want to be this head of this super group and, and I think I'm capable of doing it. And thankfully we didn't have anything sort of like any of them sort of object to that. They all, they all basically just said, yeah, no, we, we, we think you can do it. You know, you mm -hmm. end up getting Hawkeye a little bit, talking about the bossy boss and and not liking that and being kind of a kind of a jerk near the end of this story but but at least thor captain america and iron man they they all seem to be on board when when she proposes mm -hmm. uh taking over as the chairman of the of the of the avengers yeah and so i i do think that number one Demon in a Bottle is one of my favorite stories of all time. I think it's just an absolutely fantastic comic story. But also, it is it is easier to forgive a hero for a self-destructive addiction, like alcoholism, than it is to forgive them for actions like the ones that, that Hank does here. And that's why Iron Man kept his book. Iron Man has been continuously published since you know 1960 something hank pym basically got blacklisted nobody really knew how to bring him back or how to deal with him for a long time it's easier to bring somebody back from the dead than it is to bring somebody back from this correct it just there's just no there's just i don't know where you begin and, and there's no satisfying way that you can bring somebody back and and 
somehow kind of excuse what has happened in these books as a result of it. Which is an interesting point, considering next week we are going to be doing exactly that, watching a, a movie in which Ant-Man's sins and past have been completely eradicated. He no longer is the guy who makes Ultron. That's Tony Stark's fault. He's no longer uh, the guy who, you know, beat his wife. Now he's the guy who lost his wife in a nuclear, nuclear uh, bomb sort of disposal accident that trapped her in the quantum realm. Interesting point as well. Where does this leave Hope Van Dyne in the comics, do you suppose? No idea, actually. <laughs> was was there a small child that he left behind when no. they divorced? No, no there was, there not, was not. Was there? Yeah, it's there interesting. Yeah. So, Hope actually doesn't exist in the regular six one six. She is a she is a figment of another universe that they dumped in and gave him a daughter and a better backstory. And there are few characters in the MCU who are as fundamentally different as as people as Hank Pym is in the movies compared to the comic books. It, it, it's been rather striking to, to look at the way this character is in the comics versus the, what we have seen in, in the movies. Mm -hmm. And it's not just in these comics either, because if you remember the Ultimates universe... Yes, no, it he's was... He's a complete asshole in that as well. And yeah, this is him. I do not like this Hank Pym. I, I am going to be... If we can like find a way not to do any more Hank Pym stories, I, th I think I'm going to be good. I was going to try and do a, I do not like Hank Pym ham and eggs, but I couldn't make green eggs and ham work with Hank Pym, so I'm not going to. No, I, yeah, you, I, you seem I, not start, happy. I started there. I started there too, <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with anything great. So I'm just like, oh, I need to just move on with this. In any case, he is, yeah, he's a messed up character, but that is not necessarily a bad thing that you have messed up characters that you have heroes who not only fail, but you know, maybe for kids, it's good to occasionally see heroes who fail so catastrophically that they can't come back from it. He, he was blacklisted for a long time. And, and so I actually think these books are a good example of both some of the, the best parts of comic books trying to bring greater depth to storytelling in the early 80s, and also the limitations of comic books at being able to accomplish those goals in a really sort of subtle and, and nuanced way, right? It's a tough it was... story to, it's a tough story to tell in a comic book. It's a tough story to tell in a, in a superhero comic book, you know? Yeah, there there is there is nothing very nuanced about this story, unfortunately. So we have some exciting news to talk about here before we wrap things up for this week. We do. It's actually been uh, 
An interesting last week or so, we've been visiting with a group of podcasters known as The Collective, and we are actually joining their number. Collective is focused on comics and geek media podcasts, and we're actually going to be working with them on promotions and other collaborations here in the, the, the future. We're looking forward to being a part of their efforts and really would like to give some big thanks on this to Noel, first off, from the Trapped in the World podcast. He suggested we look into doing this, and also to Ray from Into the Night for his assistance actually helping us along with the process and applying and all of that. So exciting yes it's not gonna not gonna change anything that we're doing there there might be some uh some um different things about the podcast going forward some things mixed in and, and things like that just to to uh help get the word out about podcasts in the collective and uh we would definitely appreciate if you're listening to this that you go and check out some of the other podcasts uh in the collective and we'll be definitely uh, sharing with you some of those podcasts as we move forward. What is on the docket for next week, Dan? All right. Well, can never get enough Ant-Man, right? So we've, a lot, we've read a lot of Ant-Man comics this month. And we, we should definitely be prepared for our rewatch of the first Ant-Man movie next week. Three weeks ago. We read a bunch of Scott Lang comic books. This week, we read a bunch of Janet Van Dyne and Hank Pym comic books. Nobody really knew what to expect from the Ant-Man movie when it came out back in 2015. And, having read these ones this week, you might get some idea of why a number of us were a little worried about exactly what we were going to get out of the Ant-Man movie when it was announced. But, mm-hmm. actually proved to be fun and successful I'm actually looking forward to seeing it again and visiting about it with everybody. Yeah, I uh, just watched a couple weeks ago to get ready for Quantum Mania, and I, I, I think I'm ready to see it again. I, I, I remember it being a lot of fun. So that yep. is what is on the docket for this next week. And that's going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Have some thoughts on The Trial of Hank Pym or Janet Van Dyne or early 80s comics, please let us know. You can send us your comments via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com or you can reach out to us via social media. We are on Twitter. That address is at comicsovertime. Until next week, take care, everybody. See you next week, folks. Have a great one.